Jamie Parker loves adventure, and he doesn't wait for it to happen. He kind of sets things up for it. He's not new to adventure. He's done other adventures, but using the motorcycle is new to him. And when you hear this story, I think you're going to hear what I did. Jamie loves adventure and pushes himself to make it a challenge for him. And that challenge is the reward, not the t-shirt afterwards, but in the doing, the experience. Another thing I think you can't miss is his unbridled passion for riding a motorcycle. I mean, he's a new rider, but he's fallen completely in love with riding. You can feel it in his words. That really resonates with me because I know that feeling. I know when I get out and I'm riding with another person who wants to call it a day, I just want to ride more. And in the morning we wake up at camp, I just want to break camp and ride. I often find myself standing around somewhat feeling impatient because I want to get back on the bike. There's more to Jamie's story, a a lot more, but I'm also taken by the excitement that Jamie shares in his discovery of the motorcycle connection. You know, one rider helping another just because they're a motorcyclist. I'm Jim Martin. This is Adventure Rider Radio. Stay with us. We got a good one for you. Sam Manning, Justin Vince, Simon Pavey, Helga Pedersen, Jocelyn Snow, Charlie Borman, Simon Thomas, Lisa Jarvis, Grant Johnson, Jimmy Lewis, Graham Jarvis, Chris Birch, Nick Sanders, Justin Vince, Jason Spafford, Lisa Murray, David Peterson, Rachel, Ed March, Glenn Hickstead, Dr. Gregory W. Fraser, Dave Barr, Michelle Lanfear, Tiffany Coates, Herbert Schwartz, Red Tax, Zoe Cano, Graham Hoskins, Joe Russ, Jeremy Creaker, Simon Thomas, Lisa Thomas, Simon Pavey, Grant Johnson, Robert Wick, Seth Simon, Elizabeth Martin, Quentin Smoot, Bernard Smith, Nathan Millward, and you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. Adventure Rider Radio. Green Chili Adventure Gear offers American-made, heavy-duty luggage systems for all types of motorcycles. You can turn any dry bag into luggage using their strapping system. And, of course, Green Chili Adventure Gear is tested in extreme weather and terrain to withstand the abuse that adventure riding gives it. Tough, reliable gear. GreenChiliADV.com. Best Rest Products is the maker of the Cycle Pump, the best tire inflator for motorcyclists. It'll inflate your flat tire in less than three minutes. Made in the USA, comes with a lifetime warranty. They also distribute Google Tech filters, cyclepump.com. My name is Jamie Parker. I am based just outside of Manchester in the UK, and I work in property investment. Jamie, welcome to Adventure Rider Radio. Thanks for having me. Hey, describe where you're sitting right now. <laughs> so, uh, I know you're asking me that because we just talked about that before we started recording. So um, I uh, just bought a, a stone cottage in the Peak District in the UK, uh, which was built in, I think, 1851, something like that. Um, and so I, I bought this house this year and it needed lots and lots and lots of work doing. And, um, I was just saying that, uh, I prioritized doing the trip that we're about to talk about instead of renovating this house. And so consequently I'm in a very much half renovated room in a very much half renovated house right now. So if you hear a few creaks and bits of floorboard mm-hmm. noise, that is why. But the whole point is the reason it's not finished is because of the trip. 
Absolutely. I mean, a month before the trip, I lost all interest in doing DIY and was busy buying panniers and tank bags and new tires and all sorts of exciting stuff. And then at the end of the trip, I had no idea that I would be so exhausted. Mm-hmm. And I pretty much just spent a month achieving nothing uh, when I got back. And so all of that added up is why, if it does sound like I am, I'm sitting in a half renovated room right now. Now, you're a relatively new rider as well. You've only sort of just discovered the the motorcycle and the passion for traveling on that. Can you talk about that? Yeah. So, yeah. I, so, I, I, so I'm 39, just to put some context in here. Mm-hmm. Um, and I only, I mean, almost literally only just got into motorbikes. And so I, in the UK, you have to before you can ride a bike on the road at all, you do this thing called a, a CBT test where you spend a day with a test person riding a, a 125cc bike. And then you can, as long as you pass that, you can legally ride a 125cc on the roads just to learn how to ride. So I did that um, September 2022, um, which is just over 14 months ago. ago. Yeah. Yeah. So I did that and I had a a little CBR 125 Honda, um, which I, without realizing was pushing far too hard for what it was designed for. So literally the day after I passed my CBT, I went out and bought a 125 and then my job at the time involved working all over the country. And so I thought it would be a good idea to use this 125 to commute on instead of using my car. So immediately, um, like literally 24 hours after passing my CBT and having never ridden a motorbike before, I was then setting off on these sort of hundred plus mile journeys across the UK. Um, and eventually I, I blew that poor little thing up cause I was on a, on a dual carriageway trying to make this bike stick at 70 miles an hour. And the best way to do that, or the only way to do that was to leave it in fifth gear instead of going into sixth and just having it at almost full revs. Um, and I'd been doing that and managing to keep up with the traffic. And um, yeah, the engine melted and uh, the mechanic that came to rescue me, I'd never seen anybody look at me like I was such an idiot in my life. Um, and so we got this poor bike back and uh, it was good for nothing. So anyway, so I um, that was last year and then that got me through the winter. And then um, in spring this year, I did the rest of the tests that you need to do. And I got my full, full motorbike license. Oh, and that's why you're on the one, two, five is because that's all you're licensed to. Exactly. And uh, so then, um, you have to set a few tests and a few bits of theory stuff and, you know, jump through the hoops. Mm-hmm. Um, and once you've done, there's two tests and a theory test and a, a few bits and pieces, it's quite, um, hard work. And then you get the full motorbike license, which allows you to ride any bike for the rest of your life. So I got that in spring this year um, and uh, subsequently bought uh, the Honda Africa Twin that uh, I then used for the trip that we're talking about. It's quite a jump to go to be, first of all, newly licensed, 125 Africa Twin. That's a big jump. I want to talk about that in a minute. But first, why why a motorcycle? You're 39 years old. How did you discover a motorcycle? So it had always been on my agenda and I was brought up to not ride motorbikes. My dad and my granddad had very much been into motorbikes. And then my dad used his to commute and he, he came off one winter on some black ice. And so I was brought up that motorbikes were dangerous. Mm. 
Um, and so although I had an interest, that was enough to sort of keep me away when I was younger. And then as life does, I just got busy with work and, and what have you. And then, um, quite recently I'd come out of a period of working far too much and getting stuck in that rut. And, um, a couple of my friends were really into motorbikes and it just felt like now is the time, you know, if, if not now, when? So, um, that was enough and, and it, it sort of pushed me into it. It's notable that your dad was a rider and then he rides in the wintertime and he goes down on black ice, which is, for those who don't know, is just a, a bit of water on the road that freezes. It's very difficult to see. And it can be in a, on, a, on a road where everything else is dry, but it's a shadowed part of the road and, and it's frozen. But anyway, he goes down to this black ice and it's the bike's fault. I think it was more, I mean, the consequences, you know, it happened when I'm one of three children and we were all quite young and... Uh, uh my dad broke his collarbone. And I, I think it was just the, the fallout from that was enough that it became sort of folklore in the family that motorbikes are dangerous. Yeah. And that was enough to sort of, yeah, like I said, when I was younger, had I turned up with a motorbike, there would have been words at home. Mm -hmm. So that was enough to keep me away at that age. And then it, it just, for whatever reason, took me until now to get it together and actually seriously go about getting the license. You, you were into traveling though, right from young. Right, right. So I'd always been into traveling. And um, again, uh, my dad, when he was younger, had, had done some traveling. And so as we were growing up, it was very much instilled into us that um, traveling was a good thing to do. And so, yeah, since um, I was 18, uh, I've, I've always enjoyed traveling and getting out. And that's, you know, when I was younger, I did the kind of typical, I, I taught English overseas and then I came over to America and did a Camp America and, and stuff like that. And then I developed a love for road trips. So I've done a lot of driving um, around the world. I've you know, driven coast to coast across America and I, I've um, driven a four by four in um, Southern Africa and stuff like that. And uh, I've done a couple of uh, slightly more crazy road trips. Um, a friend and I uh, a couple of years in a row, went out and bought the cheapest car that we could find and then did a couple of trips. So I've, I did a road trip one time from uh, Manchester, UK to Istanbul over the middle of winter in a, um, a Volkswagen uh, car that had cost us 300 quid. And we drove that and it had no heating and it was just as crazy as you might imagine. And then a year later, we bought an old uh, Ford Fiesta for a similar amount of money. And we drove that uh, from Manchester to Moscow, obviously before the war. Um, and so we ended up with this really cheap and worn out Fiesta and it got down to minus 27 Celsius. And so we, you know, we hadn't changed the antifreeze and this thing was sort of freezing up and, you know, crazy stories like that. So yeah, I've always loved getting out and road trips have always seemed like a very good way to travel to me. And so when I got serious about getting my motorbike license, gluing the two together just seemed like the most natural thing in the world to do. And so as soon as I'd been riding this 125 with my um, friends and learning how to ride, it just fell into place in my head that the absolute most sensible thing to do and only thing to do with a motorbike was to buy something capable of long distance travel and to test that as, as much as I possibly could. 
Mm. Was the car thing, was that part of a rally or race that they have? There? I know there's this rally they have where you buy a, a dirt cheap vehicle and I can't even remember where it goes well, from it too. Is that what it was? No, just off the bat, just, just with whichever, whichever friend was stupid enough to join me on it. And no, just um, spur of the moment. And I'm a big fan of, I think, uh, planning kills spontaneity. And so I'm a big fan of just making a very loose plan and just going and what will be will be and that that makes the trip. And so, no, there's no organization with anything that I've talked to you about. Um, it's I really am a huge fan of just put the bare bones in place and then something will happen. And generally whatever happens becomes a story. So you mean from the perspective of, it's not you're thinking that over planning, you know, stifles creativity in the trip. You're thinking under planning actually makes it an adventure that you enjoy. I think both is true. Yeah. I think, um, over planning stifles, you know, spontaneity. Um, and so under planning promotes, madness and excitement and adventure or whatever you want to call it. So when you find yourself standing in the freezing cold and the pouring rain with the hood up and you're trying to repair something, that's fun to you. Yes. So the, I mean, the worst we got, we were in somewhere between Moscow and Finland. So we'd left Moscow and we were driving North towards Finland and we had this stretch of days that it didn't get above minus 20 and it got down near minus 30. And we had this stupid Ford Fiesta. Um, and one morning it just would not start. And so I ended up walking around this little Russian village with Google Translate on my phone. And I typed in this really rudimentary SOS message that said something like, please help, our car is broken. And so I was knocking on random Russian front doors. And then as people answered, I was just holding my phone up so that they could read this Russian message on Google Translate. And eventually some gruff Russian bloke who looked like he might be about to kill me, actually he came out, unbolted our battery, took it into his house, and he sort of gestured that he needed two hours to charge the battery up. Um, and when he, we met him a couple of hours later, not only had he charged the battery, which he then subsequently bolted back into our car and started the car for us. He'd also collected a load of warm clothes from his house, which he gave to us. And he said, it's, you know, through Google, Google translate, he said, it's not safe to be driving, but if you must, please take my clothes. And and that was it. And so this, yeah. And, you know, we'll probably talk about this more later, but the kindness of strangers should never be underestimated. Now he's, he's probably warming your battery as much as he is charging it because that, that temperature, the, the battery's mm. drawing down just from the temperature. But, but the Google Translate thing, you know, as you're walking around, you, can you imagine somebody knocking on your door with a, with a phone and, and doing that? I just wonder what people think. You know, what is their initial I reaction think, when you're short, sort of holding the phone out and saying something? Yeah, I, I've often wondered this because I think if you're in a major city, if you're in London or Paris or New York or wherever, you're more probably more sort of pre-programmed to accept that you might get strangers knocking on your door. But if you're in some far-flung little village, particularly of the types I'm describing just in God knows where, Russia, to have some weird English dude knocking on your door, I don't know. I, I don't know what goes through your head. I mean, I like to think that if I was the recipient of that and if someone knocked on my door, I would help them. Um, and again, I've been, when I've been out and about, you know, I'm the kind of person that picks up hitchhikers and all of that stuff. I like to, I know how it feels to be on the other side of that. So I like to 
reciprocate where I can. But you're right, I don't know what what those people must have been thinking to these stupid British blokes. You pick but, up hitchhikers? <laughs> yeah. You don't worry about yeah, that I mean, the whole thing of, you know, that maybe they're they're up to no good? No, I think I think the vast majority of people are just fine. And actually, I mean, as a total aside, I wouldn't say I needed somewhere to stay in London. Um, and I, I sort of put a message online saying I need somewhere to stay. Um, and this woman responded and she said, uh, this is my apartment. Um, go to concierge and collect the keys, let yourself in. I'll be back later. And bear in mind, this is a total stranger. <laughs> um, and I checked into her, her apartment and it was this beautiful multi-million pound apartment next to the River Thames in the middle of London. Um, and there was sort of, you know, Apple Max everywhere. And there was the keys to her Jaguar and all this, all this stuff, like wow. more stuff than you could imagine. And when she got back, we had dinner together and, you know, it was this amazing scenario that we didn't know each other. And she just said, yeah, crash at my place. And so we got some takeaway and we sort of had dinner and we were chatting. And I said to her, what possesses you to trust a complete stranger in this scenario that I just described? Yeah. Um, and she said, you know, she'd lost her um, partner. Um, he died of um, cancer. And so he died. And she said, um, she likes meeting people. And the vast majority of people are much more likely to want somewhere to stay than they are to steal your car. And so she said, you know, she just likes people coming in. And, and the kind of point I'm making is that she was saying you can, most people are just trustworthy. And I think there's a nice message there because it's easy in day-to-day life to think the opposite. But actually, I think it's true. You know, in, in day-to-day life, if, you know, if any normal person was walking down any normal high street and someone needed help in any way, almost everybody would give it. And I think, you know, whether that's in a medical scenario or a traveling scenario, like we were talking about or what have you, I think actually human nature is that you help people if you can. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and that they're that they're not looking to do something ill toward, mm. you know. It's uh, absolutely, it, and so when you're out in these far flung places and you're, you're behaving, you know, in this way, and you need help through Google Translate, I think that carries over. And so, you know, I, if someone knocks on your door now and it was some Russian motorcyclist that needed help, you'd help them, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, of course. I mean, it's a, and yeah. it would it would almost be a fun thing to do. It would be a fun thing to do without a doubt. Absolutely. You know, it would, Absolutely. And you, so you'd gain so much from it. And I guess that's where it comes from. It's just, I think getting your head around it. I think a lot of times because we hear so much about be afraid, be afraid. I mean, face it, that's, like we ha- we are connected to the world now. So, you know, somebody knocks over a, mm-hmm. a grocery store in Cambodia, we seem to hear about it here in North America, right? Oh, a store was robbed. Yeah. How scary, how yeah. scary the world is and how scared you should be. And so it's tough to get away right. from that. I think it is, but I think it's a, you know, if you're going to be going out traveling and I know that other people who, who have been out traveling, you know, they, they kind of fall back on that same element of human nature that you can trust most people. Um, and so it is quite heartwarming when you get out and you have to, you know, you're forced into situations where you need help or, you know, you need to trust other people. Mm-hmm. And it's nice that you can fall back on that. And personally speaking, even, you know, I've been in some quite crazy scenarios around the world and I've never had any trouble.
Every time we hear about Africa on this show, we hear about incredible landscapes, diverse culture. It's often referred to as the ultimate adventure motorcycle trip. Well, Renadian Adventures specializes in adventure motorcycle trips into Africa. Renadian Adventures is owned by Rene Cormier, and Rene did his own round the world trip on $25 a day. He's the author of University of Gravel Roads, a great book about an incredible adventure that chronicles his trip. Rene says that Africa is safe to travel because on their trips, they mainly ride in rural areas and stay in upscale lodges at night. They've got new BMWs to rent and a full-time Renadian crew based in Cape Town to help with planning, etc. The routes can either be paved or with some gravel, and they've got a backup chase vehicle, and that's for anything they need along the way that they've got to carry with them. But it's also a place for pillions that don't want to ride, yet still want to see the sights that their partner's seeing. So Renee says they get pillions every year that want to ride in the van, and that's fine because that's what it's for. And for you as a rider, if you have an issue, that's what the van is there for. I mean, if you had some reason that you wanted to not ride for that day. Renee says that Renadian Adventures Africa trips are the most vacation-y of their guided tours. They're nice adventures during the day with lots of comfort at night. And that riders that are new to international touring will find Africa as a great starting destination. Renadian.com is the website. Anytime you're dealing with them, throw in there that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. Renadian.com. The Atlas Throttle Lock is not only a thing of beauty, but a marvel of engineering. And it's designed by a rider, just like you, David Winters, David and Heidi Winters, from their round-the-world trip that they did on their KTM. This is a tiny little device that clamps onto your handlebar in seconds, yet transforms your bike and your comfort level. It's designed like a Swiss watch, finely crafted from metal with two buttons on it, one for engage, the other for disengage, and the tactile feedback from them is perfect. So when I press those buttons, I don't need to look. I can feel what I'm doing. Pressing engage holds my throttle at the position I set it at, and then I just twist to add more or less throttle, and it holds the new position. That allows my hand time to relax and uncramp, and with that, my wrist, my forearm, my upper arm, even my shoulder feels better with the Atlas Throttle Lock. And another bonus is it's easy to remove from one bike to another. So you can, if you're selling your bike, you don't have to let it go with it. AtlasThrottleLock.com is the website. Anytime you're dealing with them, throw in there that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. AtlasThrottleLock.com. I know what you already, I know what, you, what you've got from travel or at least some of what you've got from travel. But I'm, I'm curious, your dad was, you, you said your dad was saying that it, it's good to travel. You should get out and travel. What, what, what was he telling you was good about it? What did he, what did he tell you you're going to get from travel? Not from what you know now, though. What, 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 did you, what was he trying to communicate to you? It's an interesting question and something that I've never, I guess I've never really analyzed that beyond just the obvious. But I think it was just the assumption that when you get out and you get out of your comfort zone and you get out of your immediate surroundings that you're obviously very familiar with and comfortable with, it just expands your mind and, you know, it, it kind of pushes you and develops you in ways that you could never achieve if you didn't leave, you know, your sort of five square miles that you grew up in. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think just that general, and it, you know, it wasn't ever spoken about in such literal terms, but I think just that generalized idea that it's good to meet other people and you know, sort of experience other cultures that you may not be as comfortable in, um, for better and for worse, you know, cause again, for anybody that's traveled, you know, that there's 
you get the good bits and you get the bad bits. And actually, I think it's easy to forget the bad bits when you're traveling. People love to sort of come home and talk about how they had this almost religious experience and it was, you know, it kind of warped their life into something incredible. But for every good experience, I think with traveling, there's an equally difficult experience. That's life too, though, isn't it? I mean, we, and we, that's we, life. But yeah. I think it's sort of exaggerated when you're traveling because the good stuff is really mad amazing in a way that you could never recreate at home. Yeah. And the bad stuff is really mad frightening in a way that you could never experience when everyone's speaking the same language as you and, and you're you in can your just own environment. It's a, it's a, yeah, yeah. Ex- exactly right. Yeah. You mentioned already that it was natural for you to take the motorcycle and put it into travel. That, that's, I guess, sort of right from the start of getting on the bike and getting excited about it through your friends. So you plan a trip. Now, it's bizarre because you would have just got your license and then you would have been going on a trip almost immediately afterwards. So what's, what's your plan? It obviously wasn't so, a small plan. So, I mean, so I'd, I, I mean, I think almost from the day that I sat on a motorbike, I knew... I'd got this kind of sense of excitement that I wanted to go off and do a trip. Um, so the plan was there in my head to do something, but I didn't really know what that plan was. And I sort of developed this kind of secret plan almost in my head that wouldn't it be fun to try to get to every country in Europe? And I'd got this idea in the back of my head And I hadn't mentioned it to my friends because I thought they would think I was insane. So I'd kind of got this loose thought in my head. Wouldn't that be cool? And wouldn't that be a challenge? Um, But I pretty much kept it quiet. Um, And so as much as my, particularly my motorbikey friends knew, I was going to go off and kind of see what happened. But in my head, I was going to go until I could go no more, essentially, in Europe. Well, why is it difficult to go to, go to every country in Europe? Why is it difficult? Yeah. Um, <laughs> I think it's easy when you look at, on Google Maps to say, ah, oh, you know, there's Europe, nice and concise. There's roads. Fish bash, ride <laughs> from here to there. You know, that'll be nice and easy. Yeah. Wow, Europe is massive. <laughs> like... I mean, again, it's easier, again, to, to sort of say this. And I, I had, didn't have the full appreciation of this before setting off. Europe is really, really big and really, really diverse. Um, and so when you actually start looking at it realistically, it, it's far more to try to go to every country than it looks like it might be if you were to just glance at Google Maps. And in some ways, I'd made that mistake. You know, I'd, I'd sort of sat in bed with... Google Maps on my phone and had this sort of semi-fancy in my head of wouldn't it be cool to do this trip. It was only a very few days before that I actually started seriously looking at distances between country to country. I started to think, wow, you know, (laughs) it's, it's really a mad challenge. But by that point, because I set the challenge in my head, I, it was anything else other than that plan would have seemed like a bit of an anticlimax. So I almost ended up forced into 
this ludicrous plan by myself. So how did you underplan this in your typical fashion, as you're saying, for travel to make it more exciting? I mean, it sounds like it's enough of a challenge anyway, convoluted route going through Europe, trying to hit every country. Yeah. What, what part of it is underplanned? Well, I mean, I'll tell you, I mean, I'll start with what planning I did do. So I, I bought the Africa Twin and I didn't buy a new bike. I bought a 2016 uh, bike and, you know, there's, <laughs> um, I saw, so I went and bought this bike from a, a bloke 20 miles away and there was the sort of typical riding at home. And bear in mind at this point, the only time I'd ridden anything more powerful than 125 was in very controlled environments with a, an instructor. So there was this weird day that I just went and collected this Africa Twin 1,000cc bike, far more powerful than anything that I'd, I'd ever sat on mm-hmm. and sort of gave this guy some cash and he waved me off and that was it. So that night I, I sort of went for a huge bike ride around where I live and was really quite out of control on this bike. You know, I remember trying to drive up just onto a pavement and really, um, you know, sort of the pavement at the side of the road, would you call it the sidewalk? Uh, yeah. Well, you, where you walk, you mean? Yeah. So I was just trying to get out of the road just to pull over, just to take five. Yeah. And just going up the curb at the side of the road was more than, you know, in this huge, heavy bike that I wasn't used to. Well, that's to. what I was going to say. It's not only 1,000cc, but it's heavy. This is a big it's bike. It's a heavy and bike. And it's tall. Yeah. It's tall. It's just much bigger than anything at that point I got any experience yeah. on. Um, and and then, so in a, in a really quite short amount of time, I just, um, I kind of, went for the classic gear because I didn't really know what else to choose. And so I just bought some, the kind of classic aluminium Givy panniers Mm -hmm. because that's what other people seem to be using in photos. So I just bought the set and, you know, bolted them onto the bike and I'd already got a small tent. And so that was fine. And I'd already got a small camp cooker. Fine. And so within this quite short period of time, I, I kind of amassed this stack of stuff in the corner of my bedroom. And then the day, be- I, so I'd set the date of the 1st of August to start this trip. And so um, the night before I sort of pushed everything else in the room to one side and just put everything onto the floor that I'd collected, opened the three panniers, you know, the, the two side panniers and the um, back pannier. Top box. Top box. And just sort of shoved this stuff in. And I'd, I'd made a little list on my phone, you know, to sort of check off, you know, camp cooker, canister of gas, toothbrush, tent, you know, sleeping bag, mm-hmm. um, a, a few really rudimentary tools for the bike. I didn't even have spare inner tubes, actually. I just had like some tire levers, really basic stuff. Um, and that was kind of enough that the panniers were filled and then got a small amount of sleep. And then the next morning, which was just a work day, you know, everyone else was at work and it's just a very normal day. And I just sort of really unceremoniously carried these panniers outside and I'd never ridden this bike with the panniers on. So I sort of clicked these panniers on and it turned out I'd underestimated the weight of these things, you know, combined it was 70 kilograms, which is a, it's like having a person on the back of your bike. So I kind of clicked this stuff on and I hadn't even got a tank bag at that point. So I, the, the first miles that I rode on this trip was to the local motorbike shop to buy a tank bag. And so I went in and said, I need a tank bag for an Africa twin. And they, you know, just whatever they happen to have, bang, that'll do. And that was it. That was the planning. So your planning was really with what you were putting on your motorcycle to go on the trip. Oh, and I, 
I should add, uh, to top that off, I also decided I was going to take a, a guitar. So I, I play guitar. So I decided I was going to take a guitar on this trip. So this morning that I carted my stuff outside, I, you know, I strapped the panniers on and then I said, like, how am I going to attach a guitar to the motorbike? And I kind of had some bungee cords and stuff and I managed to just like strap it on, on the pillion seat somehow. And, <laughs> and that was it. But you know, that was, that was the planning. Wow. So this is your, this is your no plan. That's going to bring you some adventure, the riding of the bike loaded. How does that feel to you? Do you feel confident at that point? Uh, I, you know, I like, I like a challenge. Um, and up to that point, almost everything I'd done on motorbikes had been a challenge one way or another with the learning and, you know, stepping up to bigger motorbikes and stuff. So I was kind of used to the, to a motorbike feeling like a challenge. And so I mean, at that point I was a little jarred by how heavy the bike felt. Um, mm -hmm. but I was so committed and so ready for this challenge that I was just ready to go with the flow. And I remember, um, so I set off and there's motorway for the first hour. So on, obviously any bike on a motorway is easy, but then I kind of got to the smaller roads and there was traffic trickling through this little local village that I had to get through. And I was almost not in control of that bike, trying to just trickle behind cars. And apart from anything, I'd chosen the DCT Africa Twin. And so on top of all of the rest of the madness that I was trying to get used to, I was also on the fly learning how to control a DCT bike, which of course is different to riding a bike with a clutch. So I was also dealing with that just amongst everything else going on. So certainly it took a little while to get comfortable on that bike. And there's a difference between challenge and, well, I mean, I think there's a crossover point between challenge and risk. Do you have a right. li line between those two? <laughs> because no, I think new... that's where excitement lies. <laughs> okay. That's right? that. <laughs> so the, the, the you trip, you're, you're loaded up. I mean, it, does, it doesn't begin so well though, because I think it was your first or second night camping that didn't turn out so well can you can you tell that first night first night so first i'd um my my plan on the first night was um so i'm based just outside of manchester in the uk and just north um like an hour and a half north is the lake district which is still in england it's beautiful as the name describes lakes and mountains and it's it's really beautiful scenery like it's where you would go hiking or whatever. And yeah. so I was relatively familiar with there. So I thought night number one, I'll go there and then I'll, it gets the first night done and I can test the gear. And if there's anything really substantially wrong, it's easy enough to get home again, to swap up whatever needs swapping before I carry on. So I went up to Lake District, all good. Weather was fine. Had a nice ride around, did some off-road forest tracks, had a nice time, was getting my head around the bike. Um, and there's, uh, the, the, most gnarly mountain pass in the Lake District is called the Hard Knot Pass. And so I thought, wouldn't it be fun to ride up the Hard Knot Pass as, as it's going dark? And um, I thought I will wild camp at the top of the pass. Um, so I kind of parked up the bike and, you know, carted all my stuff up and set the tent up and cooked a steak and it was all good. And then the weather came in. Wow. And because I was at the top of this pass. It meant I was really exposed to the weather that was coming through. And so over the course of the night through to the following morning, 
this horrendous storm was whipping through the Lake District. And there was me in this old tent that I'd had for maybe 15 years, this old Van Gogh tent, um, just absolutely being smashed to pieces by this storm. So the tent was leaking. When I woke up, there was a literal puddle of water at the bottom of the tent. My sleeping bag was wet. I was wet. My clothes were wet. How the bike didn't blow over, I don't know. But the poor bike is there being you know, blown around all over the place. And so I had to, I mean, I sat in the tent for about an hour sort of wondering what on earth to do. And eventually I, as quickly as I could, just threw my waterproofs on, smashed the tent down into something small enough that would fit into the pannier and, and got out of there. But it meant that literally, I don't know, less than 24 hours into the trip, all of my significant equipment was soaked through, sleeping bag and everything, absolutely soaked through. I was soaked through. And that is a very, very difficult place to be when you're embarking on something as long haul as what I was setting out to do. Certainly not a good way to start. Now, at that point when you're, you're stuffing everything into your motorcycle, soaking wet and everything's soaking wet and you're cold, does it make you second guess what you're doing? Yeah. Yeah. I was not having a good time. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I hadn't, like I said, I hadn't done any sort of trial runs. I hadn't, you know, so by that point I didn't, you know, over the course of a long trip, you get used to where every little bit of your gear goes. And so over the course of a trip, you get much quicker at packing away and making it so that you're not making everything sort of sustainable so that you can keep using it night after night after night. But on the first night of a trip like this, you've got no plans, you've got no system. And so I just ended up with everything all over the place. And like I said, the weather just was awful. I, yeah. I mean, I suppose, you know, I had to drive at that point that probably anything could have happened. I wanted to, I would have just kept going, but it was certainly a bit of a kick in the teeth to be starting the trip. <laughs> In such a miserable way. Well, yeah, and and, and compared to your previous travels, like in, for instance, a road trip in a car, you've got the protection of the car. Even if the car is not working, you've got the protection of the car from the elements. Yeah, so that's, that's important. Yeah, the bike really exposes you in so many ways, which is great. Yeah, but it can also be detrimental as well when it comes to this. Absolutely case. right. And actually, that's a very interesting point, and that's something that I'd underestimated. And you know, for the rest of the trip, or for anything that you ever do on a motorbike, it's interesting how exposed you are to the elements, mm -hmm. not only from a, a sort of weather and whatever perspective, but also you're so exposed to people. And so it amazed me on the trip. When you're in a car, you've got this metal shield around you. And so you're isolated from what's going on. It continually amazed me on a motorbike, how exposed you are on a motorbike. And so if you ride through a forest, you can smell the forest. Yeah. And if you pull up near anybody, they will talk to you. Yeah. Um, you know, and it's, there's no, or very little isolation on a motorbike and it's most of the time that's amazing. It's one of the things that makes it special. I agree. Yeah. It can also, when you're feeling, um, tired or sort of overexposed to whatever, it's also sometimes quite hard work mm -hmm. that you can't, there's no shelter. You're yeah. so, so exposed all the time. Sure. A brief rainstorm and, soaks you. Whereas if you were in a vehicle, it would be nothing. You put your wipers on for a few minutes and it's done. But the bike, you're soaked yeah. all of a sudden in the brief rainstorm. And then you have to deal with that yeah. for the next, depending on what you're wearing, the next couple of hours. 
Yeah. But also just from the perspective, you know, when you're riding through a city or a town or anything, just how close you are to people and your surroundings and everything. Yeah. And so when you're somewhere that you might be feeling a bit culture shocked, there's very little barrier between you and reality. Um, and that surprised me actually throughout the trip. It's like one of those dreams of going to school without your pants on. A little bit like that. <laughs> it know, is that like, same sort of feeling. Yeah. yeah. It's like it, you, there's nowhere to hide. Right. And it's that, it really took me a long time. I'm not sure I ever got used to that actually. Um, sometimes that, that felt a little hard work and sometimes it feels amazing depending mm-hmm. on the scenario. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's a good observation. So you didn't pack it in. Obviously you, you managed to get through. What did you do? Did you just go to a hotel and dry out or did you just go for the day? No, 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 no. I was absolutely. So I'd set uh, my kind of loose, again, in my head plans for the trip. I was avoiding motorways as much as possible. Um, and that sounds contradictory because I said I left and started on the motorway, but that was on roads that I knew very well. For the majority of the trip, where I could avoid major roads, I did. Um, and the other um, sort of rule that I'd set for myself was to camp everywhere that I could. So there were some countries later on in the trip that it would have been really dangerous or almost impossible to camp. And so I, I was using uh, hotels or Airbnbs, mm-hmm. but for the vast majority of the trip, literally wherever possible, I was camping. Mm. Now, you, you were only in a few days... And you had a crash on this bike, this brand new thousand, brand new to you, thousand cc heavy loaded bike on your adventure trip <laughs> yeah. after you've had your one day when you've been reined in, then you had a crash. So, yeah. so first of all, just, just talk about the crash. What happened? So I was, um, I started in England. I'd then gone to Wales for the second night. Then I caught the ferry over to Ireland. Um, so third day of the trip, I'm in Ireland and I'd landed in Dublin. Um, I wanted to go to Northern Ireland as well. So I'd ridden up to Northern Ireland which is quite a long way. And then I'd um, decided to head down to the west coast of Ireland, which is this sort of beautiful, wild road that runs the whole coast of Ireland. And it's beautiful and people head there. So I'd headed out there and I thought, oh, I'll camp somewhere on that road for the night. And bearing in mind at this point, I'd been riding for maybe 12 hours. And I'd found a campsite that I'd phoned and they'd got some spaces and they said, yeah, it's whatever, 10 euros or whatever it was. So I needed to find an ATM because I only had... UK currency and I needed euros because I was an island. So I was running through this little town, village town thing, um, peering into shops to try and see if one of them had an ATM. Uh, and sure enough, there was a, you know, a shop that had an ATM in it. And I, I saw the ATM and I went to stop without realizing the front wheel was over a patch of oil on the road. And so before I knew what was happening, that bike was on the floor. Mm. (laughs) Um, And it, I mean, I guess no one ever doesn't feel shocked when they fall off a motorbike, but no one ever wants to fall off a motorbike. Mm -hmm. Um, But particularly with me being so new to the weight and the size of this bike. And so I think with hindsight, the error that I'd made, I was, I was sort of looking left and right into shops as I was riding down this high street. And when I saw a shop, I went to pull over, um, use the front brake and the bike just bang, went out from under me. And with the shock of falling, I sort of pulled on the the throttle. So the back wheel had spun up and sort of kicked the bike out a little further. Um, and it, it threw me off to the side and I managed to make both of my shins bleed, which I think is something of an achievement. I don't know how that's possible. What, what do you mean? I think what, both what of my sh- 
I think both of my shins had hit the handlebars as I fell, just the way that I fell. Wow, that is interesting. And then kind of, <laughs> in sort of kicking out to try and um, react in whatever way my, my body had reacted. Well, you usually want to pull your your, la- your inside leg up, right? So the bike doesn't land mm. on your leg. You just happen to bike yeah. pull both up by the sounds of it. I think I jumped out of the way, but I honestly, I don't know. But I got, both of my shins were bleeding. But there's the, you know, I'm aware that more experienced riders probably fallen off and maybe you get more used to it. But for me, you know, it was combined with the, as soon as you're away from home, you you feel more isolated. And I was tired from having, you know, it had been a really intense first few days of the trip. Mm-hmm. And I really, at that moment, it was going dark. I was a long way from home. And the last thing I wanted to do was to be dealing with this motorbike on its side. And it really, really hit me hard. Not, you know, I mean, I'd hurt myself a bit falling off, but it was more the kind of, I, I guess most riders have a some sort of fear of falling off. You know, that's a natural thing to have. Sure. You never want to see your bike on its side. Yeah. And so the kind of, I, I guess for me, it shattered the illusion that I was never going to fall off combined with the fear of reality that this is, it's that easy to fall off. And I, you know, I'd kind of hurt myself a bit anyway. Uh, I twisted the handlebars and, you know, I, it, it was just a very upsetting experience for me. Um, and, you know, people came and helped me. You know, the reaction of people was amazing. And actually, so one guy um, swerved his car in front of my bike in the road to block other traffic so that no one would hit me or hit the bike while it was on the floor. Oh, nice. And um, he and several others, really, their reaction was incredible. They came and picked me up and picked the bike up and checked I was okay. And people were offering all sorts of stuff. People were offering me to go back to their houses for help and people offering me, you know, whatever. Uh, but the guy that had blocked the road with his car, by complete coincidence, because I was in the middle of nowhere in Western Ireland at this point, was an independent motorcycle mechanic. And he said brush yourself off, take your time. When you're ready, follow me back to my driveway. I've got all my tools and I will fix your bike up and you'll be good to go. Wow. And so, you know, I kind of stood around for a little while just to let the, you know, you've got that stupid adrenaline in your system and yeah. you, you know, you get the shakes and, you know, you really, you know, I kind of checked that I wasn't really hurt and, you know, I could, you know, everything was okay. And, and so I did. And so it was, you know, dusk, whatever time it was, I don't know, maybe 8.30 in the evening. And I followed this guy back to his house for a few miles and pulled up on his drive. And this total stranger just, you know, he, he stripped the handlebars off and, you know, the forks, just checked everything over, got me kitted out. Um, and he gave me a couple of bottles of beer and he, he said, you know, you're good to go. And I tried and tried to pay him some money and he would not have it. And in his words, he said, that's just what motorcyclists do. If, if I was near your hometown, would you help me? And yes, of course, absolutely. And so, you know, this kind of stranger in the night hooked me up, everything was good. And I, I was really shaken at that point. And I had this sort of, it was pitch black by that point. I had this, probably the worst 50 miles that I rode on the whole trip, riding through the dark in rural Island. There's no streetlights. You know, even in the best scenario, it's difficult to see where the fields begin and the road begins. Mm -hmm. Just this terrible, heavily shaken ride, you know, uh, that kind of awakening that you realize that you're not invincible. 
And I found this, t- it was just a tiny little campsite on a farm that I was heading to. And I, um, I pulled up to the farm and I thought, in, I mean, you know, I'm an island and everybody in Ireland has whiskey. And so I paid the farmer this, whatever it was to camp on his field. And I said, I have a little extra, you know, do you have any whiskey? Like, can I, you know, I've had a bad day. Can I buy some whiskey off you? And he said, I don't drink. You hit the one dry farm. The the one. (laughs) It just felt so unlucky. He's probably on the map as the one dry farm in Northern Ireland. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, I got these couple of beers that this guy had given me. And so I just sort of put the tent up and had a beer. And I I phoned my, um, my friend, you know, my motorbike friends back, back home. And, uh, you know, I was really, really heavily jarred. You know, it, it kind of seems a little stupid, maybe when you tell the story back like this, it's difficult to kind of put it into words, how shaken I was at that point. Mm-hmm. And so I phoned back and I was really, I was really unsure. I was really, really on, on the edge about if I was just, if maybe the most sensible thing to do was to stop the stupid plan and just come home. And my friends, I'd like to say hello to them. There's Wayne and John, my two motorbikey friends that pretty much taught me to ride. And they'd kind of babysat me through every stage of the way. And so I phoned them and uh, they universally just said, suck it up, get back on the bike and do what you've set out to do. And so the next morning I made the strongest coffee that I've ever drunk to try and get some positivity into myself. And at that point, from where I was in Ireland, I could have either headed east back to the ferry to get back to the UK or south to the ferry that goes to Spain. So I did about an hour's ride, pulled over, bought a ferry to Spain and did the rest of the ride to the south coast of Ireland, boarded that ferry, which is two nights, three days to Spain. And that really is where the trip began. See and be seen. I just love that model from Cyclops Adventure Sports. And when it comes to auxiliary lighting, Cyclops really has it nailed. It's no wonder because they're owned and operated by adventure riders just like you. And the other day, Daryl was telling me that, Daryl from Cyclops was telling me that Cyclops just bought skiing lights and more recently, extreme dual sports lights. So their massive selection of top quality lighting just got even bigger. They've got plug-and-play systems for tons of bikes, bikes with CAN bus systems. I mean, everything. LED headlights that are DOT approved, so much more. I love their Evo turn signal inserts or Evolution turn signal inserts. They turn your turn signals into ultra-bright driving lights up front and stunning LED brake lights in the rear. Of course, they they also work as your signals still. But the conversion really makes the bike stand out. I mean, incredibly on the road to other drivers. Also your vision up front because the the driving lights and the looks, just the general looks of what it does for your bike. Incredible. Also, they've got these two inch Aurora auxiliary lights. I mean, they've got tons of lights, but these ones are super bright yet so tiny. You can fit them on any bike. CyclopsAdventureSports.com is the website. Anytime you're dealing with them, throw in there that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. CyclopsAdventureSports.com. Your foot pegs are not just your connection to your motorcycle. Obviously, that's really important, but they're also a tool for you to control your bike. In fact, I would say arguably 
They're one of the most important tools when riding slow or on challenging surfaces. With a correct foot peg, you have more leverage to control your motorcycle, especially a heavy or loaded adventure bike. And the correct foot peg is one that is designed professionally for adventure riding, specifically. It's manufactured as tough as nails, maybe tougher than nails, and and is designed in a way that suits your riding style. IMS Products makes a full line of adventure motorcycle foot pegs, just like I described there, that are designed specifically for your style of riding. They use cast certified 17-4 stainless steel and a certified heat treating process. They're made in the USA and they're warranted for life. IMSproducts.com is the website. Anytime you're dealing with them, throw in there that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. IMSproducts.com. I wonder, what do you think would have happened if you had not had your friends to call at home and just decided, you know, for just to be on the, on the safe side, I'll just call it quits and I'll try the next one, maybe a little less aggressive. You know, it's very difficult to, to know. I mean, I think, you know, the, the drive within me is strong, but I was also heavily shaken at that point. I think, probably that's the point that you need good friends because sometimes you don't know what's best for yourself. And just to have friends that get it and they understand motorbikes and they understand maybe you as a person and just people that you can call on, you know, when you're really not in a great place and they can just give you a sensible answer. Mm -hmm. That's what it's about, right? That's what, that's what, that's what you have friends for. So yeah, but I don't know. I mean, really, what you did, you lost your trust in the, in the motorcycle. I mean, you, you had a certain, probably a false sense of security on it as far as how the bike handles, et cetera. It's a wonderful bike you're on, obviously, the, the Honda Africa Twin. So um, it gives a certain amount of confidence just in, in the bike design that we often don't, t- or we often don't give credit to. We, we take it for granted, the, the design of the bike and how it handles on the road being so much of what's behind the building of the motorcycle. And, and you lost that trust because it went down and all of a sudden it becomes this thing of maybe I don't know this thing. Maybe this thing. Totally agree. Yeah. And actually, I think, yeah, I mean, what you're saying is completely right. And I think after that was when I really learned to ride because until that point, I didn't know the parameters. And so, you know, you may be doing stuff and you don't know necessarily whether you're doing something good or something bad. And I think once you realize maybe how vulnerable you can be on a bike and the kind of consequences of bad riding or what have you. Yeah. I really, looking back, I I look at that scenario as when I really got it together and started to feel like I had proper control of that bike. Jamie, I wanted to ask you, because you you said when the bike went down, the people came up and and they, they helped you. And I was wondering Mm. when you said that, I, I thought about the hospitality because you've done lots of traveling. Otherwise you already have a certain feeling for people in the world that most people are good, that people are there and, and they will help. Did you get the feeling that motorcycing is like a, like a difference, but like the, the sort of hospitality oh, yeah. and attention? Yeah. And in fact, I, I, I'm kind of glad that you asked me that question because it, it, one of the real big take homes from this trip and bearing in mind, you know, I was in some pretty weird places um, eventually on this trip universally and without question, literally without question, motorcyclists are there for other motorcyclists. And I, I kind of had that, a sense of that when I'd just been at home in England and I, I don't know, I, I guess, you know, there was the kind of, um, 
brotherhood of bikers and you know if you you nod at each other and you know you acknowledge each other um but it's incredible the support that bikers have for other bikers and there was many many i mean too many that i could even list scenarios that other bikers that didn't speak a word of english when i was in scenarios completely wild and unknown other bikers that would pull over and check that i was okay whether I'd stop to eat a sandwich, stop to check something, stop because I was worried about the bike, whatever, other bikers are just, it's, it's, I mean, it's unreal. I don't, I don't really know how to put it into words. Like the, the support that bikers have for each other. And it doesn't matter what you're riding. That's one of the best bits about it. So when I was in um, Estonia, I um, was needed, well, I was checking my bike. I, I don't remember what I was worried about, but and a couple of guys on Harleys, you know, sort of proper hardcore Harley riders pulled up and they wanted to help. And it didn't matter that I was on a, an adventure bike and they're on Harleys. They, they just wanted to check that I was okay. They were from Finland. We were in Estonia. I'm English. Didn't matter. They just, they thought I had a problem because I was pulled over. They pulled in to check I was okay. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think, um, you know, for what it's worth, just to say thanks to all the bikers, you know, who may remember meeting me or may not remember meeting me, but regardless, that is just incredible. And then, you know, it, riding alone and doing the trip that I did completely alone, when you realize that you've got that support from other riders, it really takes the edge off because, you know, I'm utterly convinced regardless of where you are, certainly in Europe, and I'm pretty confident that probably carries across to the world. Um, if you're on a bike and you see a biker in need, you will stop. That's just the law of the jungle. And it's amazing. That's a very good point. It's a, it's a, like a, almost like a security network there of, of strangers that, you know, people that are, mm. are connected to you. And the fact that you're, that you're such a new rider, you don't have a pedigree of motorcycle upbringing. You don't have deep connections. You're sort of mm. new on the bike or you are new on the bike. And yet here they are, They're, these riders are, are stopping to help you. And I think that's a, a, a real great example of our motorcycle, uh, uh, well, whatever you call it, want to call it community at the very least that, mm -hmm. that we have out there. I mean, that's just amazing. Yeah. I think just bikers are just good people. Yeah. I, I, you know, I, there's no other way of putting it than that. It's, I, I'm always amazed at how we have, that we have this common thread, which is just the fact that we, we all enjoy two wheels, different kinds, different ride styles. All, all, all kinds of differences within those, but those two wheels, just the fact that you're riding on two wheels and balancing going down the road is such a, a strong common thread from one rider to another. And it, it's, yeah. uh, I, mean, I don't think I can ever hear it enough. You know, these, these stories of, of people, you know, coming to another rider's aid, you know, it's, mm -hmm. it's great. You had at one point, you, I mean, this isn't all you went through. You went through so much more than what we're even going to talk about, but you, your brakes failed at one point. What happened there? Yeah. So I'd, um, I'd had the bike heavily serviced before I left. Um, almost every removable part had been swapped out. Um, and so I was maybe naively confident that the bike was just going to be fine. So quite early on, you know, I, so I'd been in Spain. Um, and as I was riding towards Portugal, I started to have problems with the, the front brakes. Um, and again, I fell back on my friends at home and, you know, sort of a couple of phone calls and I, I couldn't, I couldn't quite get my head around it. And I, by the time I got um, a little later in the journey to France, I got the front pads changed and it turned out the mechanic that had done the work on my bike had put 
some pads on the front that were too, the compound was too soft. And so they'd overheated very easily with the sort of summer heat that I was riding and combined with the weight of the bike. And so they, they weren't giving me the braking power. So again, power of technology, <laughs> which is not to be underrated on a trip like this. So I um, used Facebook, joined some French motorcycle groups, used Google Translate to translate an SOS message saying, help, this is my location. I need new brake pads and this is my bike. Um, some people answered in French. Facebook translated that for me into English. I was then able to um, message. And so I was lying in my tent at about 11 p.m. I could find all these garages that people were recommended in my area. A few of them had WhatsApp as a communication method. So I WhatsApp people in a translated message in French and one guy messaged me back in French. And so I was having to copy and paste his responses into Google Translate and then respond and copy and paste back. And this guy essentially said, no problem, come to my garage tomorrow. Um, and so I did. And, you know, he purely corresponding through Google Translate, he um, said, yeah, your, your pads are screwed, basically. Um, I had to ride across town to the Honda garage, get some new pads, ride back. And he fitted them and he charged me a really small amount of money. Um, you know, but that's, that's just part and parcel of doing a trip like this. Yeah. You mentioned the heat that you're riding. Is this, this one, the heat got very oppressive and you, you almost, uh, uh, it, it almost wow. made you pack things in. Yeah. So I'd, um, I'd, uh, come across to Spain and, uh, Portugal and Andorra and, um, and into France and towards Monaco. And, the heat was just berserk. And actually it was in the news that Europe had a sort of record breaking heat wave this year. And there's me like a moron in the middle of that heat wave wearing not summer gear, just my standard gear. Um, and on top of everything, I was wearing one of the Helite airbag vests, which doesn't breathe air at all. So I'm sort of wrapped up in full-size leather boots, all this gear. And, you know, you can open the vents on gear like that, but it doesn't suffice. I was really, really struggling with the heat. Um, and I, I had this sort of night, disastrous night where I got as far as Monaco and um, I was, I mean, my, my head went with the trip. I was so exhausted from the heat. And bearing in mind by this point, I'd done a lot of miles. This is probably the point that the reality of the size of Europe was setting in. And I'd been across all this different terrain in those countries. And I ended up sort of smashing across the South of France and, um, the heat was just unbearable. And every time any wind flow stopped, it was just awful, you know, blazing sunlight, 40 plus degrees centigrade, wearing all this kit. And I just, I couldn't take it. It was just really sucking the fun out of the trip. And at that point, my planned route was to head further south into Europe. Again, I was ready to come home and it, it's difficult to, you know, with all, all the environment that I was in, you know, I, by that point I'd been away from home for longer and, you know, I'd had this instant in Ireland and, you know, I'd been dealing with thing after thing after thing after thing. And, yeah. you know, I did some wild camping in Spain and like, some, you know, all these different things that I'd exposed myself to. And so in a really relatively short amount of time, I'd probably exhausted myself. And then the heat on top of that, and it just this kind of point where I was on a knife edge between is this plan just totally stupid or can I actually do it? And bear in mind at this point, you know, I'd been through 
one, two, three, four, five, six, seven countries at that point. Mm -hmm. And I had, you know, another sort of 40 plus countries to get to. And I'm already exhausted, scared to death. And I was at this point where how much can you put yourself through until it's just really, really, really stupid. And, um, and so that night I, um, I took an Airbnb instead of camping because I was just, I couldn't take it. I needed some air conditioning and I just needed to reset. And I had this really miserable night where I didn't know if I could achieve what I'd set out to achieve. And that's a really, really sad feeling when you're out on a trip like that. You know, I was thinking how sad would it be to turn tail and just head back up France and go home to fail. The next morning, I turned it on its head. And so I said, if I'm going to keep doing the trip, I'm going to head north as fast as I can on the assumption that the further north you go, the climate will cool. My plan had been to go further south into Europe. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what that eventually meant was that I did this kind of really illogical route across Europe to get to every country. And it meant that later on in the trip, I was crossing over roads that I'd already ridden because I, I kind of ended up doing this weird figure eight route <laughs> around Europe. Um, but it worked and it was enough to keep me alive. And so the next day after that, I headed up into Switzerland and with with riding into Switzerland, you get the altitude and with altitude, you get cooler weather. That, that kind of saved me. Um, and that revitalized you. That sort of got you back as yes, I'm loving the ride now. It was enough. And it took a couple of days, you know, it was hard and I was tired and, you know, bearing, I, I was, I'd probably only been on the road for a couple of weeks at this point, but you know, a couple of weeks of intense riding in unfamiliar territory is that's, you, you're kind of tired two weeks in. Mm-hmm. Um, And yeah, I just slowly got my head back in the game. And within a couple of days, everything was great again. Your your ride style on this, did you have any days off or are you riding hard every day? Mm -mm. No, I I mean, almost the problem is that I love riding a motorbike. And part of what had led to this trip was every time I'd been out with my friends, it would be coming to the end of the day and I would... I'd want to keep riding and riding and riding and riding almost to an insane degree. Like I just want to keep riding. Mm-hmm. And on this trip, I'd be like, I, you know, I, I thought, you know, I'll do 10 days and I'll take a couple of days off somewhere nice. I'll swim in the sea. I'll take some time. And actually every day I wanted to ride the motorbike. And that, it <laughs> almost surprised me because that excitement, even right at the tail end of the trip, when I'd done 14,000 plus miles and I was shattered and, you know, it was still fun to get on the motorbike. And actually, after all this, when I got back from the trip, um, the weekend after I got back, immediately I was out riding the bike. The fun of riding the bike never diminished. It, it's just, one of my friends, early on when I was riding a bike, he described riding a motorbike as being like, on a roller coaster that never ends. And that I could never, and can't, I couldn't get it out of my head because that's the best description. It's like this insane fun that just keeps going and going and going. And then you put some more petrol in and it keeps going and going and going. And that was almost a problem for me because the excitement of being on the bike never died. And so even when I was shattered 
And I'd been up with people that I'd met in random campsites drinking until whatever time in the morning or whatever, whatever craziness was going on. It was still the next morning. The best plan was to get on the bike and keep riding because it was just fun. You mentioned that you went into Spain. You went from Spain to Andorra, I believe it is, on the smuggler's trail. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah, and that was your yeah. that was your first sort of off-road experience? Yeah, so off-roading. Um, so I the only prior off-roading experience I had to that. So the day that I um or within the first week of buying the bike, I'd um gone off with one of my friends that rides a GS twelve fifty. Um and we tried we call them green lanes in the UK. Um they're sort of legal off-road routes, you know, old um tracks and old routes that are legal byways. Mm-hmm. So you can legally ride your motorbike on them, but they're just unpaved off-road routes. And so we'd um my bike was almost new to me and he'd got this 1250 and we headed up um this route and we maybe did I don't know, maybe maybe three quarters of a mile off-road. Within a third of a mile of going off on this track, I fell off my bike and it kind of fell into the grass and I had to lift my bike up. And then coming back down, he fell off his bike and we, you know, he picked his bike up. And so that, whatever that very small distance of off-roading, that was my experience with riding a bike off tarmac before I started this trip. Um, just this ludicrous little excursion off-road. Um, and so heading off into this trip with this laden bike, yeah, I had no experience really beyond that. So there's this amazing route that runs um, from Spain into Andorra and it's called the smuggler's route. And it's the, because Andorra still is a tax haven. So petrol and tobacco specifically aren't taxed or if they are, it's minuscule. And so compared to Spain and France that border um, Andorra, tobacco particularly was very, very, very cheap. And so there was this historic mountainous off-road route that led out of Andorra, high up in the mountains, winding down through the hills into Spain, into this tiny little village where historically smugglers would smuggle untaxed tobacco into Spain mm. from Andorra. And is that walking or, or, or with a vehicle? Um, I guess they would have used horse and carts. Oh, it would be a a pretty mighty walk to do that. Right. So, for, so from that time period though, before vehicles. Oh yeah. I would imagine it would be smugglers on horses. It would be a horseback. Right. Trip. Yeah. Um, so fast forward to modern day and this route um, is a kind of four by four or motorbike route. And it's an incredible, if anyone's in that area, I really recommend it because it takes you from this little village in the North of Spain and it, it starts off on a tiny little country road. Then it goes down to a, an even smaller sort of concreted farm track. And then it just goes to off-road. And it winds up, I, I honestly, and I apologize if this is incorrect, I suspect it's about 10 miles, something like that. Mm-hmm. And it winds up through the Pyrenees mountains towards Andorra. And it's just insanely pretty. Um, and so it's got a decent gradient on it because you're climbing up towards Andorra, which is at a, a decent altitude. And it's got these alpine views of the Pyrenees and there's a couple of minor water crossings and you eventually sort of finish on this relatively steep scramble uphill. And then just when you, I was starting to despair, you, you just emerge onto this mountain tarmac road and it says, welcome to Andorra. <laughs> and it's 
Yeah, I mean, it's an amazing road to ride, but specifically for me with no off-road experience, combined with being new to the bike, combined with being new to having weight in the panniers on the back of the bike, you know, for me, and I, you know, I know that for other riders, they'd probably do it with one hand on the handlebars doing a wheelie. But for me, it was really pushing my uh, knowledge level or skills or ability or fear level or whatever you want to call it. <laughs> and it, it was really exhilarating to sort of have the bike off-road for the first time. And obviously later in the trip, I learned a lot more about riding off-road, but that was the first time I got the tires dirty. The first time the tires went underwater, you know, it was a kind of not so much a baptism of fire as a, you know, it was, it was an exciting way to start to learn how to ride off-road. And did it all work fine? Did you drop the bike and... I was fine. No, I was fine. I mean, there was a couple of times, you know, I'm sure you're familiar with that feeling when the bike becomes very heavy, when it's just at that point yeah. and you manage to sort of leg out and, and save it. There was a few of those, um, you know, riding hairpin turns on dirt track is, I think, still quite a difficult thing to do and maintain balance. Um, and so there was a few bits that really tested me, but no, the bike... I'm very happy to say the bike stayed upright. Well, dropping the bike is part of riding an adventure bike. And, and the more you do it, the more you find that everybody does it. Even experienced riders do it. You know, it's just one of those mm -hmm. things that happens It's part of it. I mean, you take a big, heavy bike like that, that's really kind of like a street bike on steroids, off-road, loaded mm -hmm. up in particular. Of course, it's going to go down at some point. It's picking it up. Actually, you're right. Problem. You're right. And actually later on, much later on the trip, when I was in Romania, um, I stayed on this little farmstead. Um, I couldn't, I couldn't find anywhere to camp on this farmstead. I got some rooms, just some basic rooms to rent. Um, and I stayed there for a couple of days actually, because when I arrived, um, the, the owner's son spoke English. And when I arrived, I said, um, I'm desperate for an oil change. You know, I've been riding long beyond the, the, the service interval of the bike. Um, I need an oil change. Like, do you know anybody that might be able to help me? And he said, stay here for two nights. And my friend will go into the local city and find the oil and the filter for you. And we will do the service for you on the farm. So um, <clears throat> that left me the next day, just on this farm in rural Romania. Um, and he said, um, you know, you're staying two nights. He had a quad bike and he said, let me take you into the hills and I'll show you around our local hills. Uh, he said, you ride your bike and I'll ride the quad and I'll take you out. Um, and he sort of had some beers shoved in his pockets and, you know, really, really kind of rough and ready and, and fun. Yeah. And so we set off and we went belting up into this hit, these hills and he was on a quad bike. So he was fine. Within two miles, my bike was on its side because it was this wet grass. <laughs> you know, the tires I got on were pretty warm by that point. And you're right. So at that point, the bike fell over. By that point, I was well <laughs> used to controlling the bike and I just sort of stepped off it as it fell over. Yeah. And it was almost at that point a joke. And so he helped me lift the bike up and we we kind of like regrouped. And actually our answer to the problem of the bike falling over was that he put the quad away and he rode pillion with me on the assumption that more weight on the bike would make it more planted. And so we had this sort of crazy scene of the two of us. And he was quite a big dude going up into these hills in Romania and we kind of rode up there and we drank some beers and whatever. And then we had this amazing night where they'd, they had a sheep farm. And so they killed the sheep and they got this spit and the charcoal pit out and they roasted this sheep 
over the charcoal and people just sort of drifted in and they had some homemade wine that people brought in these plastic water bottles that they'd made wine in. And amongst this berserk party, this guy arrived and said, I've got the oil. And so we sort of in the darkness next to this roasting sheep, we dropped the oil on the bike, got the filter off, new filter on, topped it up with oil. Um, the, this young lad that had been helping me on the farm, he went off for a quick taz around the farm to test the bike. And then we sort of carried on with this party, you know, pulling bits of sheep off this sheep that was on the spit and drinking this wine. And, and that was me good to go. So the next day, you know, handshakes and thank yous. And <laughs> I had a fully serviced bike. Just incredible. Yeah. How many, you said you, you, I think you said 40 plus country. How many countries, how many countries were you planning to, to go through? That's, that's a very good question. I'm going to, I can't do it without counting. I think it's 47. Would you like, in fact, I could, li- would you like me to list the countries that I ended up riding through? Sure. Go ahead. And you might need to brace yourself for this. I apologize. It's quite a list, but, um, in order, if it was a country that I went across multiple times, I haven't written it down twice. So this is just in order as they came, but not duplicated. So England, Wales, Northern Ireland, and Ireland, Spain, Portugal, Andorra, France, Monaco, Italy, Switzerland, Liechtenstein, Austria, Germany, Hungary, Slovakia, Czechia, Poland, Lithuania, Latvia, Estonia, Finland, Sweden, Norway, Denmark, Faroe Island, Iceland, Slovenia, Croatia, Bosnia, Serbia, Romania, Moldova, Transnistria, Bulgaria, Turkey, Greece, Cyprus, North Macedonia, Kosovo, Montenegro, Albania, Malta, Vatican City, San Marino, Luxembourg, Belgium, the Netherlands, and last but not least, Scotland. Oh, wow. So this is in, uh, you said two months. Two and a half months. Two and a half months. That's yeah. that's just amazing. And so, like looking back on this trip, your first motorcycle trip. W- mm-hmm. What did you get from that? I mean, it's. I think it's the ultimate way to adventure because it's so raw. You know, going back to that thing that I said that you're so exposed. It's just a raw way to travel, and so talking about countries maybe like Iceland, where a lot of the roads there are off-road and the weather is unkind. And exploring on a bike is just a wild, I mean, really insane way to travel. And so I think to do a trip like that and all the people that I met, all the bikers that I met, all the bikers that I met and rode with, even if it was just for 10 miles and some people that I rode with for a couple of days, if they happen to be going the same way as me and just all the people on the ferries and all the, just all the million experiences that you can't list just in a conversation like this, the kind of minor and the major experiences that you get, that is what it's all about. It's just, you know, I mean, Traveling anyway is an amazing thing to do, but traveling on a motorbike is adrenaline filled and it's frightening and it's dangerous and it's exciting and it's fun and it's insane. And doing that every day for two and a half months, honestly, how much better does life get than that?
Jamie Parker from his home in Manchester, UK. We've got some photos from Jamie's adventures in the show notes for this episode on our website, adventureriderradio.com. And you can find Jamie on social media at Climb That Mountain UK. Hey, I just want to remind you that this episode has been brought to you by Green Chili Adventure Gear, greenchiliadv.com, Motobreeze Chain Oiler at motobreeze.com, and Best Rest Products at cyclepump.com. And we'd really appreciate it if anytime you're dealing with these companies, anytime, email or otherwise, let them know you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. up another episode of Adventure Rider Radio and we sure hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we did making it. Special thanks to our producer Elizabeth Martin and you of course thank you very much for being a part of this by listening to the show Hey if you you haven't done it already we would really appreciate if you'd share the show share it with your friends, anybody you think might be interested on social media, wherever you can that helps uh, other people find the show The other thing you could do is give us a rating a 5 star rating I'm hoping is what you're going to give us anywhere you find podcasts so if it's iTunes or Spotify or any one of those spots it would be greatly appreciated Well, now it's time to get out there and ride your bike if you can. My name is Jim Martin. Thank you so much for listening, and I will talk to you next week. Oh, wait, one other thing. We've got a Raw show coming out next week, so by the time you're listening to this, there will be a new episode of Adventure Rider Radio Raw. It's a separate show that we do. It comes out every month on the 21st. Find that everywhere podcasts are found. Now get out, ride your bike. My name is Jim Martin. Talk to you next week. This is Spencer Conway from African Motorcycle Diaries, and you are listening to Adventure Rider Radio. (laughs) 